This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. A very good morning to everyone. It's always a privilege to be able to open up God's Word and dig deep into it that our bodies and our lives may be nourished. So would you pray with me as we ask God to help us to engage with His Word? Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you for your amazing word that help us to know you and help us to know ourselves. Oh Father, as we come to Ecclesiastes 8, we pray today that the teacher's words will speak to us and that we will engage with the reality of life. And Father, we pray for all of us who have been busy for the whole week that as we come here, we pray God that you rest our minds so that we can focus on your word. For those of us who have been burdened by the frustrations that the world deals to us, that Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit help us to be encouraged when we hear from your truth. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope if you have a Bible, that you keep it open. The, the verses, a lot of them will be fleshed out there, but it's always good to look at your own Bible. Now, what do lemons... Baking sodas, honey, tomatoes, ice cubes have in common. What do you think they have in common? Well, according to a website, they all help to brighten up your face, however you use it, and make you more attractive and radiant. This week, I tried to search on Google to to, to find out what makes your face shine, and it turns out this whole range of skin products and plenty of YouTubes, there are herbal remedies, homemade formulas, and as I scroll down, if all else fails, someone, the techie guy say, Photoshop. It always works. No, there is an unceasing demand in our world to look brighter, radiant, attractive, and unsurprisingly, our world is filled with plenty of recommended products to eat and to apply to make that happen. I wonder, have you tried some of these products or homemade remedies? Um, I'm not sure if all of them work, but you can give it a shot. But as we come to Ecclesiastes 8, the teacher has a recommendation, but something very different to get that effect. He recommends applying wisdom. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, Who is like the wise who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face, or if you are on ESV, it says, makes their face or his face shine, and changes his heart appearance, or the hardness of his face changes. Well, wisdom, as we shall see, uh, is not arrogant but meekness. Wisdom that knows when to speak and when to shut up, when, what to say and what not to say, what it knows, and it knows what it doesn't know. Wisdom, says the teacher, makes a person glow and attractive. We have seen and will continue to see that wisdom, he acknowledges that it, is, it has this limitation under the sun. Wisdom knows it cannot provide explanation for everything. But nevertheless, wisdom is valuable. It teaches a person to live thoughtfully and with careful discretions as you plow through and journey through life under the sun. In fact, we can find accounts of people in the Bible where 
wisdom make their face glow and sustain their life and draws people to them. Take for example Joseph in the Bible. He was the son of Jacob. He was sold to Egypt as a slave. Now all seemed lost, but his God-given wisdom rescued him from evil, from prison, won him the favor of Pharaoh. In fact, Joseph said later on in Genesis 45 verse 8 that Pharaoh so respected him that he was like a father to the king of Egypt. And he says this, he was made the lord of Pharaoh's entire household and the ruler of all Egypt. Or Daniel, an Israelite, was exiled into Babylon. His people were destroyed, his land was destroyed, but his God-given wisdom led him to become a key advisor of not one king, but multiple foreign kings. He was a key advisor to the Babylonian king of Nebuchadnezzar, of Belshazzar, later Persian kings of Darius and Cyrus. The wisdom that they had didn't make them proud or tilt their head a bit higher, looking at others, nor make their face hard. But rather, as as a writer, Michael Eaton, he says this. He says, wisdom makes a person visibly gracious in his demeanor and whose gentleness becomes obvious in his facial expression. Now today, as we come to Ecclesiastes 8, there are three areas that wisdom wants to teach us and inevitably shapes the way we look at life. And as the teacher says in verse 1, that will brighten our face and will make us um, our face not hardened with frustrations or downcast, but, but we will be able to look up in the midst of frustrations. So if you are ready, these are the three things that chapter 8 has for us. The first one is how to respond to authority as we engage with authority. Second is the need to recognize God's divinity or God's authority. And finally, to find joy while acknowledging life's complete uncertainty. So if you are ready with, with the teacher, we'll dig in to the first one, which is the longest one, on authority. Verse 2 begins this. Look at verse 2 with me. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. The teacher begins by saying that a wise person needs to take heart when he or she comes before authority. And the first thing uh, a wise person is to take heart is this, that we have an obligation to obey authorities. A wise person does what the king tells him or her to do. Obey the king's command, says the teacher. Now it's not uncommon in that time, even today, that we make a, a, a allegiance, an oath of loyalty to the king. No, in fact, in, around Singapore, you see students singing their pledge uh, every Sunday. Or for adults, you know, National Day, well, if you're at National Day Stadium, uh, the National Stadium, you, you will make your pledge again to, to pledge your loyalty to, to your country, to your government, to our governments. The only ones who do not say that are those who are not citizens, perhaps they're foreigners, they're visiting. Now, now the teacher says that this obligation that one gives is built an, an oath before God. Now if you look at verse 2, it, it, it can be read a few times, a few different ways. One, you could read that God has made an oath to the king, like the way that God made to David a covenant. But more likely, it is that men or people make an oath to their king before God. And so the teacher says that if you have made an oath, that you need to ob- be obliged to it. 
No, in fact, this applies to authorities, even to those who do not know God, surprisingly. Because this is what uh, it says in Romans 31, uh, 13 verse 1, it says this. Let me just read this to you. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Authority is established by God, and when you make an oath to, to oblige or obey, that you uh, keep it. So a wise person keeps his oath to the authority above him. And following this, first command comes, first advice comes the second, which is this. You need to watch out. To watch out when a person finds himself or herself disagreeing with their authorities. To watch out. To watch out when you find yourself disagreeing. Listen to verse 3 to 4. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? The teacher wants to warn a person that he should not be too hurried when he leaves the presence of the king. Watch out. But more importantly, that he should not take an evil course against the king. Now, in days of the teachers, this is especially tempting. If the king abuses power, now, a servant, a citizen, or a politician may be tempted to use evil means to rebel, to plot against the king's authority. And, and you read plenty of that uh, in, in history. You read plenty of that even in the Bible stories or accounts of kings. Now, to fight evil with evil, the Hollywood style, if you're an action person in movies, that's what makes a five-minute show two and a half hours because there are plenty of actions of of dealing evil with evil, with revenge, with pain and pain. This is all too familiar to us, but the teacher says, whether the king is good or not, the advice is watch out that we do not be found standing on an evil or bad intention. Because it's, it's not right, and because the king would not tolerate such treason. You know, the Bible tells of a young man called David, most of you will be familiar with him. He was pursued by his king, King Saul. And many a times he had chance to get rid of this king. And his people says, David, let's just kill him. Because you can be king. And he gave these famous words. Let me read to you what David says. And he says in 1 Samuel 24 verse 6, even though he so many times almost got killed, he said, David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed. He is the anointed of the Lord. David, he's not a fool. He's not ready to get murdered. He's not ready to just be there to die. But he refused to murder the one that God has placed as authority over him. Well, in God's own timing, eventually Saul was killed, was punished. David became king. But as he became a king, it was clear that his hands were not stained with the blood of God's anointed. Now wisdom cautions us not to stand up for a bad cause, not even to respond to evil with evil, because otherwise you will not be different from the one that you have overthrown. Now, of course, it is a very practical reason also that loyalty, in verse 7 says, you know, help us to stay from harm. You know, a person has enough trouble in his troubled life to look for more trouble 
Well, dear friends, as we start our journey, wisdom has plenty to teach us when it comes to relating to authorities. The, the teacher is not blind at potential abuse of power or potential misery. See what he says in verse 9. He says, a man lost it over to others, to his own hurt. But yet the teacher wisely points out that authority comes from God and the wise should take it to heart. I just want to pause for a moment and wonder, what is your view about authorities? Uh, what is my view when it comes to people over us? You know, these words of wisdom, it didn't just appear in Old Testament. It appears plenty, even New Testament. In fact, the, the passage that we have just read together in responsive reading says in First Peter 2, uh, where the teacher says this. I'm going to read this to us again and, and just listen to it for a moment. Say, submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers fear God, honor the emperor. Now, dear friends, how are we responding to authorities over us? This is a bit interesting to hear this in church, but how, how are we responding to authorities over us? Are we quick to complain about authorities? In the new generation, authorities are not that glam. And it's easy to complain about Are we quick to complain about authorities? No, will we, or will we willingly uh, give what is rightfully belonging to the authorities? What is theirs? You know, if they give us taxes, do we pay our taxes? When they give us law, do we keep the law fulfilling our obligation? Do we give the authorities the honor that it deserves? Now, as the Old and the New Testament teaches uh, advisors, do we honor the kings or authorities even in their imperfection? For the Lord's sake, will we wash our lips at coffee shops, at gatherings, or will we speak foolishly against the authority over us? Now, listen to what Peter says in that responsive reading. He says this It is God's will that by doing good or learning to properly honor authorities that He set before us, that His people should silence ignorant talks of foolish people. Perhaps, perhaps more than that, in learning to, uh, to honor the imperfect authority over us, the human authorities, we also, need, we also are called to learn to honor the authority that is way above there. Because if we never learn to, have a, to, to honor authorities, how do we learn to honor the one who sets it up. But of course, by now, we will all have this question, what if the king is wrong? What if authorities are wrong? How should we respond when power is abused, when evil occurs? And here wisdom goes on, and I have this third wisdom for you. There's a proper time and procedure for everything. Look at verse 5 and 6 if you have it there with you. Because there is a proper t- there is time and proper steps for everything. Now this almost echoes what we hear back in chapter 3. There's a time for this, there's a time for that, even for things that weigh heavy on the hearts of the wise. Look at verse 6. This is what it says. 
For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. You know, given the context of Ecclesiastes, given the poor track record of kingship in Israel, or given just our general observation of human history, we do see that when a single person or a group of people are given absolute power, it becomes a potential formula for burdensome misery and frustration in the sun. Do you see that? We, we do. That's why this question becomes something that we, we ask wisdom if he calls us to do the first. You know, I shiver when I think about uh, what I saw, or I remember about Como Rouge, where millions were killed by Pol Pot and the people. I remember when I, I went to Cambodia, I didn't put pictures up, it was too gruesome. And uh, when you watch walk the killing fields, you, you're stepping on people's bones and clothes because they, they're still all mixed up with the soil. And you, if you go to this thing called S21, I can't pronounce the high school, it's where they are tortured, there were photos there of how they tortured the people. And you look at their, their cell, they look alright, then you suddenly realize that this is a place where you can never bend your feet and you can never stand straight. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's horrific. Uh, it, it can't leave minds who have seen it. All the, the Nazi gas chambers, or many other horrendous things we have experienced or we have heard and we have seen when powers are being abused. There are occasions where a person may be weighed down by the misery under the kings and authorities. And it would be no surprise that kings, given absolute power in the sun, could easily abuse his power. And there will be occasions where a person, a wise person, gets really weighed down by all of this. But yet, the teacher says, there is a proper time and there are proper steps to deal with these miseries. Now, concurrently, wisdom is also aware. If you look on that, he knows the outcomes are sometimes unexpected and may not be the way you want it to be. So with that, he says this, that we need proper time and place. And coming back to the story of King David, that great nice king, well at some point in his, his kingship, he started to fall as well. For that one moment, a scar in his life, he, he committed adultery, he took his soldier's wife, then he decides to kill the soldier, and it means he kills the rest who are with him, so that he can cover his crime. That was a heavy burden amongst the people. Do you think the people don't see it? Did they not see that even though in that time that woman who is a soldier's wife coming is already pregnant, it weighs heavily on the people. No one see anything. Then come this prophet by the name Nathan. Nathan knew God has a judgment for David and he has to bring that out to him. He can't plainly accuse the king, but he has to say something. I think that's the hardest job in Nathan's life at the point. It's like, who wants to be a prophet now? Like, I have to bring this news and probably get my head chopped off. But he had to go in and he used whatever wisdom that he has. He didn't go in and say, David, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, you have usurped God's throne. He didn't. He go in and tell him a story. And David, as he listened, he says, ah, there's this rich man. He, he has plenty, but he took this one poor man's only sheep just to have pleasure. No, and enjoy it. And David was angry. And then Nathan looks at him and says, Yep, you are that man. No, when he says that, two things could have happened. He didn't know what's going to happen. He knows that's his job. Two things could have happened. 
David could have repented, or David could have killed him, because he had killed many for that, for that reason. But God was kind, David repented. But you know, Nathan really doesn't know what was going to happen. But what happened was this, he was loyal to his king. He kept it, it was because of God. He, he didn't use the evil scheme. At proper time, he, he presents it. But he leaves the ending to how God wants it to be. So a person, even in misery, learns to recognize their proper moments to bring forth truths that weighs upon their hearts. In dealing with authorities, he doesn't do what he likes. He, he does whatever he likes. And they, in their proper time, presents it. He knows their proper time and steps to do that. And he also acknowledges the unknown outcome. Which, look at verse 7. This is why he says, you know what, no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? In fact, the teacher knows this real and harsh uh, frustration and he extends his own frustration to the rest, to everyone, to say this. So he writes in verse 8, look at it, that no one has control over time of his or her death. No one gets away through wickedness. And he goes on, there are a couple more examples that he goes on. If you have read chapter 8, the teacher goes on to say that there's misery that he sees with his wisdom. The wicked were praised when they're alive and they're well buried. He sees in verse 10 11, he sees people's heart turn to evil when justice is not rightly put in. He sees in verse 11. You know, someone in Bible study shared this. I hope I got this, the gist right. If it's not right, forgive me. He shared that you know, someone, some of his colleagues, they're commenting to him that they, they, they were in, in a lot of stress. And he says, the top guys, they really don't care what's happening here because they have their own politics to play. And as long as things happen, they don't really care what's right, what's wrongly done. So there are real frustrations and there's temptation for deviation when, 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 the, when the top is not doing justice. These are all the frustration he sees and he knows. He's not a fool. But here the teacher looks beyond the authority and the sun. And then he declares something that is unseen. The authority that is above the sun. The way he puts it. It's quite unexpected because the teacher has been using litmus tests, he's been using his eyes, he's been using observation, he's done all the things, but now he says, but I know. I know this. And he says this. Look at this very important two verses um, for us. Verse 12, verse 13. This is where he acknowledges his faith. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long life, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. No, no doubt the teacher was troubled by all kinds of injustice. He felt miserable when he sees good people suffer bad people's life. Perhaps in our own experience, we, we, we may feel the same trouble. Um, students who cheat gets Really good results. You study hard, you get your D or C. The colleagues who, who claim the work of others, they get a promotion. And those who are honest workers get fired. And you wonder why this happens. Now, those who are weak get abused and hurt by those who are strong. And life goes on. Now, no doubt the teacher was troubled by all kinds of troubles in his reality as we have. But amazingly, the teacher turns to his faith Instead of saying what he sees, he says 
what he knows. Look again at what he knows. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I know that it will go, it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. This is the most amazing words that come from a wise teacher who has spent this long time that we have journeyed with him under the sun, watching the seasons come, the seasons go, looking long and hard at the obituary page, visiting death to be a teacher. He tested everything, found his limitation. He knew back in chapter 7 last week, wisdom may not rescue a person from the claws of sin, but the fear of God does. And so here he looked above the sign and declared what he knew is true. It will go better for those who fear God. It will not go well with those who do not. Now dear friends, as, as we listen to wisdom teaching us how to deal with life, the fear of God becomes a foundation for him and us as we put on wisdom that prevents our faith from being hardened and downcast by the frustrations in this world, to see reality and know the foundation we deal with and we have. Now we see this theme about the fear of God throughout Ecclesiastes actually. Behind these thick curtains, it's actually been shouting all this time if you have been listening hard enough. Chapter 3 verse 14, we see God's hand working through the seasons and he says, you're meant to fear him by looking at it. Chapter 5, 1 to 7 calls us, watch our vows make to God because God hears them. Chapter 7, he says, verse 18 reveals that God is the one, if you fear him, he brings deliverance. In all that frustrating voice that you'll be hearing, there was that shout behind the curtain. And it gets louder as we move along with Ecclesiastes. Fear God. To recognize there is a divine authority above the imperfect human authority God has set before us. The God, the heavenly king and judge, is watching what is happening under the sun as we go about our lives. Now, dear friends, I want to ask this question. How is wisdom dealing you and me? Now, how is it helping us to keep our faith from becoming hardened either by sin or by misery as we look around? Has wisdom been part of us? Ecclesiastes is here to help us that we may see and we may have this kind of wisdom that we may not get hardened in our face because of sin or because of the misery that us cause us to say, hey, bro, and just walk away. And someone puts this very bluntly. He says, actually, there are only two kinds of people. Those who fear God and those who don't. Those who fear God and those who don't. You know, to do wicked, the teacher says, their life will actually not be lengthened. Their life will be cut, cut short by the day of death. We've heard that famous favorite topic of his enough. What falls off the net of the earthly authorities will not fall off the sea that's in the hands of God. The authority was there, but under it is a greater authority that makes sure nothing falls out of it. Now, what gets away in the best human justice system will never get away from the judgment of God. Now, I, went, I want to read a snippet for us from the song of a psalmist called Asaph. He struggles actually with the same frustration as the wise teacher of Ecclesiastes and he comes out with the same conclusion. I just want to read snippets of this. It's, it's in the Bible, it's Psalm 73. I'm just going to read snippets of it 
to, to feel that actually this is not just the teacher speaking, but many more who says this. Psalm 73, I'll begin from 2b. This is what Asaph cried out. I nearly lost my foothold for envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace and they clothe themselves with violence. No, Asaph struggles as he look at evil, having good life and the good people not, doing, not having that and was overwhelmed by the arrogance and their godlessness. Listen to what response that this wicked, healthy, enjoying people says. Look at verse 9. They say, Their mouth lay claims to heaven. They claim heaven, and their tongue take possession of the earth. They make great claims about themselves. And what happens to the rest of the people? Well, listen to this. It's appalling. Verse 10. The people, they hear it, they turn to them, and they say together with the wicked, and say, How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? No, Asaph was appalled. The wicked live good lives because their crime get no sentence. They drew the crowd. The crowd make fun of God. And Asaph continues this in his frustration in his song. He says this, When I try to understand all of this, trouble me deeply till I enter the sanctuary of God. Then I understand their final destiny. Because surely God, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin and how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terror. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. No, Asaph, until he goes to the sanctuary of God, he suddenly recognized, he saw something that the wicked could not see. Just as the teacher in Ecclesiastes proclaimed what the wicked will not know. And it's this, he saw that it is better for those who fear God it will not be so for the wicked. And so he concludes his song. Asaph concludes his song this way. Listen to his song in the last portion. He says, Those who are far from you, God, will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made a sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell you all, I'll tell all of your deeds. Now dear friends, it's wisdom guiding you and my life. Keeping our faith from becoming hardened by sin or by misery. It's, it's wisdom guiding us. Are we clinging on to wisdom to teach us? Teach us to live not as opportunists in this world, but a wise man or woman who fears God, who is above the authorities that we are listening to and obeying to. Now, dear friends, I pray, I pray that as we go through Ecclesiastes, that we have or we desire to have a right relationship with God. I pray that we have or we desire to have a right relationship with God. No, do not think that we can get away with sin. Do not think that everything is going right if we don't think about it. Do not think that we have control over the days of our lives. I've heard this all too often. Perhaps you have too. When I speak to someone, he'll say, You know, Andrew, I'll, I'll think about this later. I'll think about God later. No, maybe before I die because at the moment I've, I've got things to do. I've got planes to catch. I've got goals to meet. I'll think about God and, and ask Him to forgive me just before I die to get it sorted out. May we never think like that for a moment because how do you know where we will be tomorrow morning? Take heed of verse 12 and verse 13 that we've been repeating a few times. That we should shiver to know that God's eyes 
never close. God's memory never fades. And the day of God's judgment is never made known to you and me. It's a sure grace of God that death is still outside the door and not rushing in. It's the sure grace of God that He's holding it there, that judgment doesn't rush upon us. There's a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, and when he talks about this, this is what he says. He gave this horrifying illustration to teach us what it means to fear God. He says this, let me read to you. He describes how all sinners, including us, if we are not in Christ, we are merely suspended by, from the very pit of hell in the manner that someone might hold a spider or some horrifying insect over fire. There's nothing but the hand of God that holds you and me from falling into the fire this very moment. It's to be ascribed to nothing else but the grace and the hand of God that we do not fall into hell this very night as judgment us. The teacher's wise and say, look around. He gives us wisdom to stay bright in our face. To say, but it's better for those who fear God. It's only God's hand that's still holding us that we are not yet facing judgment for the sins that we have done. Friends, is this wisdom something that you and I are grabbing on to? That our face may not be hardened because of sin, because of misery. I pray that we take this from the teacher as he knows from verse 12 to 13. Despite all the complexity of life that wisdom cannot solve, he's well aware, he's not a fool. And finally, if wisdom is guiding us to fear God, here's this surprising thing that it brings in, that we can actually enjoy this short life that we have. Even in the midst of all of life's Uncertainty in times of life's uncertainty, wisdom and not the commercial products will help us to have a face that can still shine. That a face that's not hardened as you look around the frustrations of the world. There'll be no commercial products for you to do that. But wisdom is able to. Listen to these amazing words of verse 15. So I command the enjoyment of life. Because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. The teacher has already repeated this advice many times. He has already said in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, no, find joy in your everyday life, in the everyday things of eating and drinking or even working and recognize that these are all possible because of verse 15. All the days of life under the sun are given as gift to you and to me. Just pause there for a moment. It's a gift to you and to me. To find joy even in the midst of life's frustrations and uncertainty, we, we must never fail to acknowledge that life is a gift. The days that we have are gifts. Job said in one twenty one, we saw it last week, he says, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be his name. The Apostle Paul, he said it in one of his letters, he says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, you can rejoice, even though now for a little while you may have to suffer griefs of all kinds, but you can rejoice. You can rejoice. The recognition of God as the giver of life 
enables us to give thanks for everyday things. Even when we face grievous situations under the sun, we don't have to wait for the big events to give thanks, to enjoy it. The teacher says, enjoy them. Your day-to-day life, they are a gift. Now, I remember this clearly when my un- just when my uncle was about to die from his cancer many years ago. He was 33 at the time, so I was much younger. I was just nearing his death, he said this to me. He says, to be able to do your very basic things that you're doing, give thanks. He's saying that from his experience as he's struggling to do the most basic things that we forget to give thanks and enjoy it. Because he no longer eats the food that I eat. He no longer drinks the drink I drink. He doesn't wear the clothes that I wear. He doesn't do the basic things himself the way that I do. don't even give thanks to God. He says to me, to be able to do the very basic things that you are able to do, give thanks, enjoy them in this short life that we have. I think it was one of the wisest advice I learned from a dying Christian man when I was a kid. Now perhaps we are tempted to protest when life feels unfair for us, when we complain if others' life feels unfair, when we grieve over unfair suffering, persecutions, perhaps sickness, when we struggle with terrible news on TV, on media, when we find it hard to enjoy the things we have. In those moments, the wise teacher calls on us to remember that each day is a gift from God. Enjoy that moment. Enjoy the drink. Enjoy the food. Enjoy work, because you can work. We'll see this next week when we talk about the, the preciousness of life, when being able to work is something only the living gets to do. But today, help us to recognize that God is the giver of life and each day is a gift. And perhaps at our next meal, when we give thanks to God, that we really thank God and don't complain about the food, but to, to be able to enjoy it because, well, look what, I've got teeth to eat. I've got a stomach to swallow. Not everyone can. We give thanks. Well, friends, as we draw this whole passage of chapter 8 in, into a close, let us remember what wisdom has taught us today so that our face can be, be shining and be brighter and our face will not be hardened even as you face life's frustrations. Because as a wise person, we need to recognize human authorities, they are given by God that we learn to submit to them out of loyalty to God. We, we refuse to plot evil against authority. We learn that there's proper times and steps for matters that weighs on us. And we acknowledge outcomes may not be in our hands. But we can learn to fear God because outcome is in His hands. And finally, we recognize He's the giver of our days. And we can find joy to, to eat and to drink and to toil. And we can thankfully enjoy each moment God has granted us. So let me close with this one word or one verse that a prophet named Hosea, he once posted, he posted the same question that Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 1 comes out with. What is a wise person? And this is his answer from Hosea 14 verse 9. He says this, and this is where we'll end. Who is wise? Let him realize these things. Who is discerning? Let him understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. May you and I, we we live with wisdom alongside us, that we put on wisdom, that our face may shine, that our face will not be hardened as we go through life's journey. We'll have more to hear from the teacher, but that'll be next week. But for today, let us pray and just give thanks to God. 
Heavenly Father, teach us to live wisely, to fear rightly, to rejoice gratefully, because we know that you are God. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.